I'm Bob Cudmore. On this episode of the Historian's Podcast, we'll hear about a conflict between the British and the Americans on Cape Ann in Massachusetts during the War of 1812, plus an encounter between the Shaker religion and President Abraham Lincoln, both tales from an environmental educator. We'll also hear a complicated but fascinating story about a murderer and a stolen brass eagle that memorialized a Civil War hero, that story from Malta's town historian. And from the archives of the Historian's Podcast, we'll have brief interviews recorded with New York State history authors at the 2016 Chronicle Book Fair in Glens Falls, New York. Our first guest is environmental educator Anita Sanchez. Anita's award-winning books sing the praises of unloved plants and animals. Her first summer job, leading kids on nature walks, turned into a lifelong passion for nature. Anita is the former director of educational programming at the Del Mar Five Rivers Center for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. She now is a freelance educator living in the Mohawk Valley town of Florida, providing programs for schools, libraries, and museums. I spoke with Anita Sanchez and asked her, or pointed out to her, it seems she tries to combine her historical tales with environmental knowledge. Yes, my main love is is nature and the environment, but I've also always been fascinated in history and all those great stories of history. And I often find that people will get more interested in environmental science if there's a really good, you know, human interest story that goes along with it as a way of getting people interested in learning more about the science. The one story that you've written, and, and tell me in what form it has appeared, is about your hometown. You're from Massachusetts, I believe uh, Cape Ann uh, in uh, in Massachusetts, and uh, you wrote a, a story about uh, an invasion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was um, born in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is you know the home of the the old the old fishing a, uh, mm-hmm. area in the the movie The Perfect Storm was set in Gloucester, Mass. So when I was growing up, there was a church in the little town of Sandy Bay, which is right on the the water. And the church, the church steeple, had a cannonball lodged in it, a small cannonball. And so I always wondered why that was. It was a historical thing. So I'll see the church with the cannonball, but no one seemed to know much about it. So when I became a writer, I decided to research this story. And it turned out that during the War of 1814, I'm sorry, 1812, the Mm -hmm. British invaded the town of Sandy Bay. It really happened. Nobody knows about it. It was just a little bit after they invaded Washington and burned the White House. Most Mm -hmm. people have heard of that. But shortly thereafter, they invaded the small town of Sandy Bay and fired, they fired on the town, a cannonball got lodged in the church steeple. So I thought it was such an interesting story that I decided to write about it. And what was the, the story? I mean, obviously they didn't stay. The, re- the thing that interested me about it was it was kind of a story about how the enemy isn't always who you think it's going to be. The people of the town of Sandy Bay were very much afraid they were going to be invaded by the British this, during the War of 1812 when the British had warships sailing up and down the coast. 
So the people of the town built an enormous fort on a little promontory right outside their town. So the British warship, the captain of the British warship one night sailing by, sees this enormous fort and thinks, well, there must be something there in that town (laughs) that's worth protecting. So he decides to send some troops ashore. So because the townspeople were so afraid of invasion, they brought the invasion upon themselves, which I thought was interesting. Isn't that so the During the, the brief invasion, there were a few shots fired, but nobody was hurt. The British captured nine Americans, and the Americans captured, coincidentally, nine British. So each side had some prisoners of the other side. So they wanted to do a prisoner exchange, but then some of the officials from the nearby militia said that they could not do the exchange. So anyway, the the point is that during the story, this is a book for children, by the way, it's a novel for for kids, Um, the British and the Americans end up working together to defeat the bureaucrats. And it, I, I really loved it because it's a true story, but it's about how people who think they're enemies can end up working together when the chips are really down. Oh, be darned. And what's the title of the book again? It's called The Invasion of Sandy Bay. Wow. And it also, um, one reviewer described it as my love letter to Cape Ann because it's such a beautiful natural area. So all through the book... I sprinkle descriptions of the sea and the birds and the rocky coast Mm -hmm. and the ocean that I love so much. So it was a real labor of love to write it because not only is it a very fun story, but I got to write about all that beautiful nature stuff that I love. Well, for what it's worth, I've enjoyed visiting Cape Ann. We usually go to Cape Cod, but we've gone to Cape Ann several times and uh, it's, it's very wonderful up there. It's very different than Cape Cod. If you like sand, sandy beaches, Cape Cod's great. But if you like rocky coasts, mm-hmm. it's, that's where the, the rocks start. It's kind of like the main rocky coast. It goes down as far as Cape Ann. And I, I love you know stormy days when the waves are pounding on the rocks. It's just a beautiful place. Do you get back there? Oh, yeah. I go back there a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I visit several times a year. We're talking with environmental educator Anita Sanchez. You've written an, another book uh, talking about the Shakers. What, what Can you tell us about that? Several years ago, I visited Hancock Shaker Village, which mm-hmm. is in Massachusetts, and it was just sort of a you know an afternoon's jaunt just to see an interesting place. And I just got fascinated by the Shakers and their whole take on the world. They were a sort of a splinter religious group that formed in the 1700s, actually, and they believed in a lot of odd things that have made people kind of make fun of them. For instance, they believed in celibacy, and so people sort of you know make fun of them for this. But they also believed in lots of other things, um, like, for instance, uh, not having corporal punishment in schools or treating animals humanely. Really? Or the rights of the elderly and infirm, and they invented some of the first uh, wheelchairs, things like that. So they're really interesting people. They also believed in the equality of men and women, and this is back in the 1700s, 1800s. They were also passionately opposed to slavery, and they believed that Native Americans were people too. So they had a lot of really 
groundbreaking ideas for their time. Yes. And you mentioned Hancock Shaker Village. I'm, I'm fairly familiar with that because, again, I used to live in the Berkshires. and uh, mm-hmm. in, Oh, yeah. Yeah, lived in Pittsfield. And th- that was always an interesting place to visit. I was trying to think of the other point about the Shakers. I mean, people loved their furniture, for one thing, and they were very good artisans and craftspeople. They were amazingly, amazing perfectionists, and that was part of their religion. They believed that as the heaven above us was perfect, so humans should try to be perfect here below. And so everything that they built, they wanted it to be perfect, and so they're their baskets and their furniture is simple, beautifully designed, but perfection. A shaker drawer will never stick. The lid on a shaker box will always, you know, open just right. They mm-hmm. they really believed in that perfection as a sign of their love for God. Mm-hmm. They also really understood that not they they were environmentalists in the sense that we are now, but they understood about things like, for instance, air pollution. Mm-hmm. And they were mocked for being silly enough to want to, uh, for instance, have vents that would allow the fumes from lamps and candles and stoves to go outdoors. Uh, they, you know, people didn't understand that there was a link between clean air and good health. Mm-hmm. And the shakers, they weren't you know, they weren't environmentalists in the sense that they realized the planet was in trouble, but they did understand about the importance of clean water and clean air, which people in those days often did not. And the one thing from Hancock Shaker Village, I remember, the, uh, the, of Shaker design is their round barn, which made it easier to feed uh, the animals. If you've ever done haying, if you've ever, like, worked with a hay wagon, you know, one of the really tough things is to back up a wagon. So the Shakers invented this round barn so that, of course, they were using carts, so, you know, they had oxen pulling the hay wagons. So the the hay wagon would go in, enter the barn, go around, be unloaded, and then go out without ever having to back up. Mm-hmm. And the barn was several stories high, built into the side of a hill. So you'd enter on the top and then you would throw the hay down into the barn. Mm-hmm. And again, if you've ever worked on a farm and done haying, usually people throw the hay bales up into the hayloft, right. which, of course, is a lot harder to do. So the Shakers were just such brilliant, brilliant engineers and designers. They, mm. were, just, they were really fascinating. And what is your book about the Shakers? It's called Mr. Lincoln's Chair. And the thing that particularly got me interested in the Shakers was they were total pacifists and were opposed to war. So they, during the Civil War, they were conscientious objectors. And this was a time when, you know, there was no legal protection for conscientious objectors. And they were persecuted and jailed and mocked and uh, were in danger of even being executed for being conscientious objectors. So they sent a delegation to visit President Lincoln, and he agreed that they could have status as conscientious objectors. And in gratitude, they made him one of their beautiful handmade chairs. So I wanted to tell the story of the Shakers, but I also put in the the story of their struggle to mm-hmm. not fight in the Civil War and their visit to President Lincoln which is well-documented. They, they wrote a lot mm-hmm. about their visit and what he said to them and what they said to him. 
and then the chair that they sent him in thanks. What happened to the chair? No one knows. It probably was not much appreciated by Mary Lincoln because she was well known to like extremely fancy things. And under her tenure, the White House was decorated like Versailles with mm. marbles and you know Louis the Fourteenth furnishings, very fancy. Um, Lincoln himself probably liked it. In fact, he described it as a very comfortable chair in his thank you letter because he was born in a log cabin and he probably appreciated the simplicity. But after his death, it vanished into the the attics of history. We don't know where it is now. <laughs> Anita Sanchez, environmental educator, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Paul Peralt is the Malta Town historian in Saratoga County, New York and comes up with interesting history tales for the Historian's Podcast. This one is complicated but fascinating, involving a brass eagle that was a memorial to a Civil War hero, originally from Malta, and a 20th century serial killer and thief. Hello, this is Paul Peralt, Malta Town Historian. In 1873, the citizens of Saratoga County dedicated a beautiful monument in the Hudson View Cemetery in Mechanicsville, to the memory of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, who was born in Malta in 1837 and grew up in Mechanicsville. He was the first Union officer killed in the Civil War, and he had been a great friend of the Lincoln family. Atop of the monument was placed a 300-pound brass eagle that could be seen from miles around. The magnificent eagle stayed on that perch until sometime late in 1997, when visitors noted it missing. The local veterans put out an alert on the Internet, and a Cape Cod junk dealer responded that he had the eagle. It was returned and now proudly sits again atop the monument. This story leads to one of the strangest characters in the Capital District that was ever produced, Gary Charles Evans, a confessed serial killer, with a proclivity for stealing antiques and a talent for escaping from police custody. Evans was born in Troy in 1954, and as a child he suffered beatings at the hands of both parents, and he claimed he was molested by his father at the age of eight. According to his sister, at the age of seven, he grabbed a butcher knife and tried to stab his father was beating the wife. His mother was a mentally ill woman who attempted suicide on numerous occasions, once misfiring and accidentally shooting her husband. After her divorce from Gary's father, she remarried and divorced four more times. Not everyone was living in the father's knows best world in the 1950s. By all accounts, all of Evan's friends, even in high school, were women and as we shall see, all of his victims were men. His first known victim was Michael Falco in 1985. Michael made the mistake of partnering with Evans in a string of burglaries. Falco was followed by two other partners in crime, Damien Como in 1989 and Timothy Reisdorf in 1997. We'll hear more about Reisdorf in a moment. While the world may be better off without Falco, Como, and Reisdorf, Evans also killed two men while committing robberies, both jewelry store owners. In October of 1991, Evans spent two weeks on the roof of a building in Little Falls, New York, casing a jewelry store. 
On October 17th, he walked into the shop, which was owned by Gregory Jubin, and he shot the owner to death. He had previously shot Douglas Berry, a Watertown shop owner, in 1989. In 1993, Evans used an engine crane, keep this technique in mind when we get back to the Eagle, to steal a thousand-pound bench from a cemetery in Albany. But he was arrested when the fence he sold it to got nervous and turned him in. In exchange for getting out of jail, Evans agreed to inform on Jeffrey Williams, who had committed a high-profile murder in Troy. His luck finally ran out in 1997 when a girlfriend, the former mistress of one of the men he had earlier murdered, led police to his hideout. In custody, he confessed to each of the killings mentioned above, revealing the the details bit by bit and directing officers to the graves he had dug. One of the murders he confessed to was of Gary Reisdorf, who was a small-town crook from Saratoga, who had made the mistake of befriending Evans. Evans claimed that Reisdorf had taken the eagle, but he didn't explain how. Remember that engine crane that Evans had used on a prior heist? Perhaps Evans was the brain of this crime also. Well, all good things must come to an end, and Gary's end happened on August the 4th, 1998 when he was being driven by U.S. Marshals from one federal courthouse in Albany, where he had been arranged for one murder, to Rensselaer County, where he was to be arranged for another. Crossing the Menands Bridge over the Hudson River, Evans kicked out the window of the van, jumped off the bridge, and landed in water about a foot deep. Was this a suicide attempt or a desperate attempt to escape? Well, when they did an autopsy, they found a handcuff key in his nose. So apparently he had plans. So the eagle is back in place. Ellsworth, a man who did not drink, smoke, or use profanity, lays honored in his grave. And Gary Evans rests in an unmarked pauper's plot. Let me put in a word on behalf of the Historian's Podcast Fund Drive. We want to raise $4,500 this year to keep the podcast going. You can donate online. The link is displayed on our website, bobcudmore.com. Or you can make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York. Thank you very much. Every November for a number of years, the Chronicle newspaper in the Glens Falls area holds a big book fair in Glens Falls at a hotel. In 2016, I was there peddling my books and talked with several other authors, starting with Tara Norman, who had just written a true crime story from the Mohawk Valley. This is Bob Cutmore, and we're at the Chronicle Book Fair, an annual event in Glens Falls, and hope to be talking during this edition of the Historian's Podcast with uh, some of the history writers who are here. Well, lo and behold, Tara Heim Norman is here, author of the book The Vindication of Lewis Roach. Well, thank you, Bob. It, it really deals with a miscarriage of justice, uh, a 1913 murder in Palatine Bridge, uh, 
uh, occurred, um, and the person who was executed and tried and executed for the crime, I believe, was totally innocent. And so the more I got into the story, the more it got a hold of me, and I had to do something, and so I eventually wrote a book. Tara Norman wrote the book The Vindication of Lewis Roach. Roach was a hired hand in the town of Palatine in Montgomery County, and in Norman's view, he was wrongfully accused and executed for murder in the early years of the 20th century. And uh, through all the complicated uh, occurrences that happened, uh, there was a, a, a resident of that area that was determined to get a reward that was rather substantial and had developed the case on his own and his own theory, and the, really the authorities uh, fell for it. And um, Lewis was was targeted because they felt that they could get to someone else through Lewis. And, of course, they ended up, the only suspect they had was Lewis. Um, and so he was, but he, he, he actually went to the electric chair less than two years after the crime. And you were from uh, the Mohawk Valley originally, but have spent most of your life in Florida. How did you get into uh, writing history? Well, I was doing genealogy, and I, I've always loved history. I've always enjoyed reading history. Um, I'm a retired city clerk, um, but I was doing genealogy and came across a news article that said someone had shot through my grandparents' bedroom window and just missed them, and I thought, well, I'd never heard about that, so I did some more research, and of course, that occurred when my dad was a year old, so he wouldn't remember it either, and uh, and I, I just this, I tripped over this story, and the more research I did, which is really a lot of it on FultonHistory.com, uh, the more I realized that this this was something I just needed to get into. It's an interesting point. FultonHistory.com is this website where this uh, gentleman, Tom Trunisky, has has uh, digitized you know thousands, millions, I guess, pages of uh, of newspapers. Yes, it's tremendous. It's searchable, and of course, it c- he continues to expand it. And then when I first started using it, I believe it was really pretty localized to New York State. But now there's newspapers from all over the country. He just keeps adding them. It's, just, it's an amazing website. We continue at the Chronicle Book Fair, and I'm talking now with the Stan C.N. Ferrano, and I believe you represent the Warren County Historical Society. Uh, it's, uh, history is an important topic, and that's our interest here on the Historian's Podcast. What brings you to the book fair? Well, the Historical Society has a small bookstore, and we sell a variety of topics, titles, and uh, we're here to try to get history out into the community. Well, I see you have a bunch of books in front of you. Have you are you the author of any of them? Um, I'm the author of one chapter in the county history book. That's it for this group. It's called Warren County, New York. What was your chapter about? Mine was the uh, preservation, historic preservation and projection to the future. Warren County, when I think of it, you know, coming from more in the direct capital district, I think of it as a uh, a more or less rural place, but is that not true anymore? No, that's true. There's there's, uh, pockets of population around the Glens Falls and Queensbury, Chestertown, but then you get out into the rural part of the county, yes. Now, you mentioned that of the books that are here, you did one chapter. Have you done another book? I almost got that sense when you, the way you answered that. Uh, no, I haven't. No, I've, I've edited some books, and th- but not written my own yet. 
Of the books that are here, what, what's uh, uh, the most popular one? What do people want to read when they read about Warren County and the Adirondacks? Well, this book, Backward Glances, uh, a gentleman named Howard Mason wrote a, a weekly column for the newspaper about his experiences, his life, and uh, he, they, he published it, self-published it in three volumes. We had the opportunity to con- put it into one volume, and that seems to be the most popular right now. Um, and it's a it's a an interesting look at life in the 30s, 40s, and 50s here in the county. I find the area I write about that's what people are interested in. Well, Stan Cianferrano of the Warren County Historical Society, thanks for joining us. Have a good day. Jim Labatt is here at the Chronicle Book Fair in Glens Falls, who writes about Amsterdam, specifically in the Mohawk Valley and other things. Uh, good to see you, Jim. Good to see you as well, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. What is it about our hometown that um, gets people interested? I've heard you explaining some of your stories, like uh, Mickey Mantle Day in Amsterdam and Let's Go Gales uh, and the oh, and the things I threw in the river to people. It was a wonderful place to grow up in the 50s and 60s. I just have such fond memories of the people I met and the experiences I had there. And so it's just fun, I guess, to relive that through my writing. And, well, is it specific to Amsterdam in terms of the people who read your books or, or not really because you uh, deal with kind of universal themes? Yeah, I was about to use that word myself, universal. I think just our experiences are somewhat universal in terms of growing up with lots of families and kids nearby and just going through school and just meeting new people, sharing great experiences with sports and activities. And you write about the Mohawk River, at least in, in one book. It's a powerful, uh, real thing, and it's a powerful metaphor, isn't it? Yeah, there's something about a river, I think, just kind of moving through your community that just reminds you of the, the cycles of life, I guess you'd say. I'm not really sure how to express it at the moment, but it's just a, it's just a neat place. And I'm sure you've been there recently, the new pedestrian bridge oh, over yeah. the Mohawk. It's beautiful. Yeah. Just a very wonderful place to just sit and reflect and enjoy God's creation. It is. Well, and, and I mentioned a couple of your books. Uh, can you just uh, finish the list if I left something out and tell us just a little bit about yourself? Well, my first book was uh, Let's Go Gales, about uh, an experience in seventh grade. And then Mickey Mantle Day in Amsterdam, which was about the same time period, a fictional piece, of course. Uh, and then I'm, so those two were young adult novels, and my last two are more for general audiences, Things I Threw in the River, which you alluded to, and then my teacher's password is more about a college student at a you know, local school and a dilemma that he faced. And you, you work in a local school, right? Yes, I teach at Hudson Valley Community College in Troy, working in the writing center and teaching uh, writing courses as well. So it's great to just be with young people every day, and they keep me young. We're continuing at the Chronicle Book Fair up in Glens Falls, and Herb Hyde joins us. Herb, uh, you're from Troy, and I believe you write about the the past? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm from Cahosna, but I I grew up in Troy. So um, when I retired, I started writing about my my youth in Troy, um, what it was like in the 40s and 50s in Troy. Came from a family of 10 kids, dirt poor. And... um, the beauty of my writing my first book was that I was able to reconnect with 10 kids that I grew up with. Hadn't seen them in 50 years. So yeah, all these little these little tales that I was telling, I, I wanted to make sure they were correct. So we all got together one day, and uh, like you're doing a recording now, I did a recording of them, uh, five of them at one time. And the next day I went to turn the tape on, I couldn't understand a word because everybody was talking all over each other. <laughs> it was kind of hilarious. 
But uh, I find it very rewarding to write uh, about what it was like back in that era. It's a very important era in this country that's long forgotten. So I continue to write. Um, I live in Cohoes now. I'm working on a book on Cohoes. Uh, it's the third part of the trilogy that I wrote. My second book was about my high school years in Troy. It was called. My first book was College and Eighth. My second book was Herbie, a Troy youth coming of age, sort of. It was about my high school years as a, as a dorky little kid in high school. And then um, the, the book I'm working on now is called uh, Uncle John's Diner, which was an iconic little diner in Cohoes where I used to go when I got my first job at the shirt factory over there. At the what factory? At the shirt factory, Troy District Shirt Company in Cohoes. Uh, we used to make uh, shirts for J.C. Penney, uh, 1,500 stores that we had, and that, that's going out of business now. So hopefully this story is going to begin in Uncle John's Diner and it's going to end in Uncle John's Diner, and everything that goes on in between will be my story about Cahos. Let's hope the Chronicle newspaper continues its traditional author's fair in November in Glens Falls, New York. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.